join Don and Greg as they discuss a newly released book by the Napoleon Hill Foundation entitled The Path to Personal Power on podcast number 642. In their interview together, they discuss the three powerful principles of definiteness of purpose, the mastermind principle, and going the extra mile. These principles are at the foundation of one finding their personal power and living a life of service. Please enjoy podcast number 642, interview with the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, Don Green. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Alan, as I do every time I come on one of these podcasts, uh, I think it's so imperative to thank every one of my listeners out there. Uh, I've now been doing this 11 years, uh, pushing 650 podcasts, uh, speaking with thought leaders like yourself. And today, joining me from New Jersey is Alan Weiss. And Alan is the co-author with Marshall Goldsmith on a new book called Lifestorming, Creating Meaning and Achievement in Your Career and Life. And this is a Wiley book, and we'll put up links on the blog, Alan, uh, for everyone to be able to purchase this. Good day to you. How are you doing? I'm good, Greg. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to have you on the show, and it's good to talk to you about a book which I actually believe as a book can have a, a huge impact on people's lives. Um, I thoroughly went through this book and it just is a well put together, thought out book about how to transform your life. And let's talk about that, Alan. Um, you mentioned in the first chapter how we become programmed, that we think of ourselves as authentic, but that we easily fall into the roles and patterns established for us by other people. And we know this is so, but it's really a challenging thing uh, because we're socialized. I mean, that's what happens to us. How do you help your coaching clients realize this and change falling into what we call those roles and for them to set their own aspirations in life? The first thing you have to recognize is why you're doing what you're doing. And in many cases, we're doing it because our parents did it or our parents told us to do it or siblings did or we have normative pressure on us. You know, when I was in school, I was a good debater. I used language well, and everyone said I should be a lawyer. And uh, I went to, to college and took political science, which is a natural precursor to law, and I took the law boards and I killed them. Uh, so I got a full scholarship to Rutgers Law. And it was that summer I realized, what am I doing? I don't want to be a lawyer. I hate this stuff. You know, I hate torts, and I hate details, and I hate research, and all this kind of stuff. So I got out of that at the last second, thank goodness, and I haven't done so badly since. So the first thing you do is you examine why you're making the decisions you are. The second thing is you have to be absolutely honest with yourself. And so, you know, you, you go out to L.A. and you go to a restaurant and the waiter tells you that, uh, you know, he or she is actually a screenwriter or an actor uh, or whatever uh, who happens to be waiting tables at the moment. And the fact is you're not a screenwriter. Uh, you're not an actor. You're a waiter. And so you might as well get good at being a waiter because right now you're not good at either. You're not good at waiting or screenwriting. So you have to be honest about what it is you're doing at the moment and not kid yourself that there's some other kind of, of future waiting for you. Uh, we hear about the one person in a million, you know, who is discovered, but we don't hear about all those other people who are never discovered and who don't have the right talents. So ask yourself why you're doing things and then be honest with yourself. 
Yeah, that's great advice. So I think the key is to get from point A to point B, you've got to know the trajectory, right? And what you're asking people to really get real with themselves is to say, you know, really, what are you and what are you good at now? And if you have aspirations to get there, obviously set some kind of plan to get there, right? Well, you set your own trajectory. And what we talk about in the book is control. Mm -hmm. The fact is that you're not externally controlled. Uh, you know, I mean, there's weather and there's the IRS and there are things like that. There's disease and illness. Uh, but you are not totally externally controlled, nor are you um, solely internally controlled. Uh, well, you, every motivational so you, speaker, every you, motivational you, pardon me, but right, you have a chart finish. in the book that you guys have created called Who is in Control? And if you would for my listeners, and I think this would be worth it, Ellen, create a visual picture for the listeners of the four quadrants. And I believe that it's really quite revealing about who is in control. That's what we're talking about here. Well, the quadrants are based on internal control and external control, which is the point I was trying to make. So uh -huh. if you think of somebody who has low internal control, you don't think you control anything yourself, and low external control, you don't think the world has much effect on you, you're taking a random walk every day. If you believe that you have high internal control, you control things, and there's very little external control on you. And that is, for example, what the book The Secret would tell you, or every motivational speaker will tell you, which is false. Uh, then you're going to think that um, you really rule the world, and that's delusional. If you think it's purely external control, you have no internal control, that it's the forces of nature, uh, it's other people who control you, that's a sort of Calvinistic, fatalistic predetermination, and that's not very healthy. Mm -hmm. So the answer here is the fourth possibility, and that is there's both external and internal control. They reciprocate. Churchill said we build our houses, then they build us. He was talking about parliament. But in fact, the weather might have an effect on you. You can't control the weather, and we've seen that extremely so lately. But you can make plan B. You can make plan C. On the other hand, you control more of your life than you think. And if you just assume that you don't have internal control, you surrender what control you have. So the healthiest people we found the people we found who are really engaged in life storming are people who recognize the reciprocity between external control and internal control. Hmm. Speak with me, if you would, then, about something that people put up, and I say in life is resistance. Um, when you're talking about internal controls and the opportunity to control something, what, how do you know when to let go? Well, you let go if something is not that important to you. For example, there's a difference between taste and um, principle. So if you're debating with someone or worse, arguing with someone about what restaurant to go to, let it go. Take the other person's restaurant or decide not to go out with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're arguing about principle, uh, we're offered a bribe to, for this business, uh, you never let that go. You refuse it because it's illegal and unethical. So the fact is that uh, we tend to get these things mixed up. And if you look at Volkswagen uh, or if you look at Wells Fargo, people went along with things as though it were a matter of taste, but it was illegal and too many people contributed to it. On the other hand, you have people getting stressed and getting into arguments, road rage, because somebody <laughs> changed lanes in front of them. So mm -hmm. the difference is knowing the difference between you know, what's essential to have and what's really nice to have. Really, really important point. And I think that you do have an opportunity to stay in control, but when to know when to let go when it isn't that important to you. And you speak about something you've termed as watertight doors. 
which you state depicts the phenomena behavior that is consistent with someone's current or former situation in life. Can you give us an example of this watertight door concept and explain this to our listeners? Sure. There are four levels which I've identified, which is uh, survive, and that means that you're doing whatever you can to put bread on the table to help your family be safe uh, and to provide some sustenance. The second level, after you've survived, is alive. And that means that now you're putting a little money away, uh, you have a successful employment, uh, and uh, you feel secure. The third level is arrive, and arrive means you're successful. And people seek you out, uh, and you're able to be philanthropic, uh, and you're impressing yourself upon life. And then finally, there's thrive, which is the highest level. And thrive means that you're not searching for meaning, you're creating meaning. Uh, and so you're in a very fine place and you're contributing around you and so forth. Now, if you look at a watertight door between all of these, what I mean is this. Survival is a poverty mentality. Uh, I have to save money. I can't spend too much. I have to be careful. Whereas thrive should be an abundance mentality. I can contribute. And it's not just money. It's time. It's expertise. It's coaching and so forth. But what we find is a lot of people who are on the arrive level or even the thrive level uh, still refuse to pick up a check. They still refuse to, say, travel first class. Uh, they still refuse to donate their time uh, to a charity or philanthropy. And so they're still operating, even though they are successful in other ways, as though uh, their survival depends on every day. And so you need to seal those watertight doors by changing your beliefs, changing sometimes to whom you listen, changing your friends, changing your coaches, and understanding that you have to move from poverty to abundance. You get it. But what you're saying, when you seal the watertight doors, you're saying that we're not stepping back into that level of consciousness again. You're moving up the the spectrum um, to thriving, correct? Right. From if this... you don't seal the door, the danger is you'll slide back to that last level. Right. But we see people slide back all the time. Um, we see people like we just talked about a minute ago that uh, had millions of dollars and lost it all and, and went into a uh, wasn't watertight doors, right? So what what kind of advice do you have? Um, I think somebody once said, um, I might be broke, but I'm not poor, right? So, you know, explain that a little bit because those watertight well, yeah, doors, not- what you're saying is put a watertight door, but I've seen plenty of circumstances in people's lives where they have slid back and forth. It's not a question of losing fortune. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. But the problem is this that um, it's your attitude, it's your beliefs, and what you have to do to seal the doors, which I think is what you're asking me is, as I said, you have to change your belief system, you have to change your friends. You know, Michael Vick, the quarterback, uh, a skilled athlete and a great quarterback, was arrested and put in jail for dogfighting, which most people find reprehensible. And he was engaged in dogfighting at a mansion, at a multi-million dollar mansion he owned, because he never changed his friends. He still had his old friends from his old days, and that's what they still did, and he never changed. And so if you want to seal doors, you have to develop new friends. You have to change your belief system, your worldview, and understand that the way to growth, and as we write about in the book, is you continually have to raise your own bar and strive for new heights. So it's not a question of whether you make or lose fortunes. I've met a lot of people who've made and lost fortunes, but you can still have an abundance mentality. Uh, So so it's not how much money is in the bank, it's how you think about life. Yeah, it is your consciousness about money. I get that. And so... Moving back to thriving. Now, in your chapter on ugly caterpillars and uglier butter- butterflies, you speak about a client 
who was extremely overweight and you tried to work with him, but he was very resistant to changing anything about his habits and his patterns. What are the questions that we should ask ourselves if we want to methodically create a better future? And you've got about four of them in the book, but what are those questions that my listeners well, my should be thinking about? Any question uh, is, who do you want to be next year? Not what do you want to do? And if I ask people who do you want to be, they usually default to what they want to do. Uh, but I ask them who they want to be. Who do they want to be seen as? Uh, what kind of person do they want to be perceived as? I, I think that's a first step. And I think a second step is asking yourself, in the areas of my life that are important, and let's just say that financial security is important, health is important, relationships are important, you know, five or six or eight things like that that are important to most of us. If uh, 10 is perfection, represented by X, Y, or Z, where am I now? And how do I change that? So uh, for financial security, it's pretty easy. If I don't have as much financial security as I'd like, then I have to save more money. But what about relationships? What do I have to do to improve those? What about my health? Should I start working out? Should I change my diet? So we have to get specific, Greg. You know, we can't be ambiguous about it. We have to say, these are the four areas that I want to change so I'm a different person next year, and here's how I'm going to change them. And I'll tell you something. If you haven't been successful changing something you want to change for 30 or 60 days, you're not going to do it. You need help. You will not do it yourself if you've tried and been unsuccessful. And one of the big aspects of life storming is to admit when you need help and get it. Mm -hmm. So when you say admit you need help, you're, you're, you're talking about a coach, a psychologist, somebody they could go to, a confidant, an advisor, uh, but anything where somebody sees and sees the perception of the reality differently, right? Well, it, I don't know if they see the reality differently. They might see it the same as you, but you're not acting on it. And the fact is, it doesn't have to be somebody you pay. It could be a spouse. It could be a partner. It could be a colleague. You might choose to pay someone for it, but you know, mm -hmm. we're not saying that's the royal road here. But the fact is that most people who don't change in a given area, and there are a lot of us, you know, uh, do change when they get the help that enables them to change. Now, sometimes the help is developing a skill. Sometimes the help is modifying a behavior. And sometimes the help is just someone who will listen to you and tell you what they've just heard. So it depends. But we're not going to be able to do it alone. And to think you could do it alone tomorrow when you couldn't do it alone over the last four or five months is folly. Yeah, I would agree. So you, you mentioned in changing these beliefs and that our belief system needs to be adjusted to what is so that you can make decisions and take actions in the present that reflect the real you and what you're actually doing authentically. Can you speak to my listeners and give them some examples of this and, and how it works? Because we're really talking about the now. Well, I'd suggest to your listeners the following. I would suggest that you think of those areas of your lives that are most important to you that you want to either sustain where they are or improve them or change them in some way, and that's up to you, and then stipulate what that sustaining means or what that improvement means, and then have someone hold you accountable. Uh, you know, Marshall uh, Goldsmith, my co-author, uh, he has somebody uh, who he's had for years on his staff who calls him once a day and asks him three or four questions. He'll tell you this, you know, at any time. And they say, how have you done on this today? Have you done this today? Have you done this today? And that way they keep them focused on it. Now, from my point of view, I have tremendous self-accountability. And I write things down on my calendar. And I say to myself, okay, where am I on this? So I would suggest you create the accountability either with yourself if you're able to or with another person if that's better, and it usually is, 
so that and you don't do this for a hundred things. You do it for the three or four things that are most important to you to sustain your change. Uh, and that way, you stay on top of things. And mm-hmm. whether it's something as obvious as losing weight or getting fit, or less obvious as being more tolerant, or uh, not cutting people's sentences off, or uh, driving with less anger, uh, it's a tremendous help. Right. It's it's interesting. You were talking about Marshall's chart because I I actually know. about the chart he's given it to me and there's about 26 items on it actually and it's really what people want in depth but to have somebody call you every day because i'm using his chart with some of my clients it actually does start to change behavior because it reminds you of the things that you're not doing and you're being accountable and i think the key is that accountability to have somebody call you um you're being called because you need to be accountable um you have a character test in the book and you've identified six elements of what you call character. Can you briefly, briefly talk with our listeners about these elements of character and their importance? Well, let me just cover a couple there. I mean, for example, one aspect of character uh, is intelligence. And I don't mean uh, IQ tests. I mean uh, your amount of learning. Uh, your amount of experience. You know, I know a lot of people, you probably do also, Greg, who are educated, but they're not very intelligent. I know a lot of people who are intelligent, even though they haven't been educated. So it's your ability to stay in touch with the world around you and to apply your learning so that information uh, becomes knowledge and knowledge becomes wisdom. Uh, Another is reciprocity, where uh, you provide um, meaningful uh, feedback and support to others, and you expect it in return. Uh, There's an intimacy involved here, not just with uh, somebody who's your spouse or partner, uh, but with people you trust, that you feel uh, comfortable being vulnerable. Uh, You don't just brag about your successes, but you talk about uh, your failures, uh, which leads me to resilience and the fact that uh, you don't take a setback as fatal. Uh, You learn from it and you bounce back from it. there's a succession of things like this that you could take something as ambiguous for most people as this phrase character and realize there are a set of skills and behaviors you can actually work on to build your character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I, you know, it, fundamentally, I think, and I, and I just basically um, went through this, uh, the path to power on the Napoleon Hill stuff. And there was 10 of those character traits that people have. And I think they're so important to develop, but they're so fundamental. Um, it's hard to believe that uh, people uh, distort them, if you know what I mean. The, just what you said about reciprocity, about intelligence, you know, it is just there. And I, for my listeners out there, definitely uh, get the book Life Storming and look at that part of the book about building character because it is important. Now, you speak about an interesting concept, actually, I think was Marshall in this case, because I like how you guys go back and forth and it says Marshall or it says Alan in the book. Um, A critical abandonment. Uh, What I found was quite interesting because this just happened to me on uh, changing clients, actually getting rid of a lot of old clients and moving up scaling clients. Can you talk about the process of eliminating things out of our life? because you also talked about minimalist, or at least you made reference to that, to make room for new. Well, Marshall was uh, entranced by this concept when I introduced it. And the fact is that 
you know, I've told my business clients forever that every year they should drop the bottom 10 or 15% of their clients because they're the least profitable, uh, they require the most work, uh, they're hanging on to them like pets, they're no longer appropriate for where they are today, and they're actually doing the client a favor too. But the fact is that you cannot reach out unless you let go. And if right. you think of swinging across monkey bars or something, you cannot reach out unless you let go. And in this case, you let go of baggage and so forth. Well, the same thing in life. There are things in life we have to abandon. I mean, a simplistic example is you look at most people's desks and they got 17 magazines stacked up with subscriptions that they never read. Get rid of them. End the subscriptions. You have things in your garage you're never going to get to. Throw them out. I've talked about changing friends. And so there is a, a critical nature to abandonment that frees you up. Uh, if you have baggage, and we all need baggage, we need stuff, right? But if you drop it on the train, it's still traveling as fast as you are. So you have to throw the baggage off the train. You might kill a cow in the countryside, you have to throw it off the train and pack your own baggage. Most people are still carrying baggage from things their mother told them 30 years ago or things their siblings have told them over the last 10 years, which are not relevant and have nothing to do with who they are today. So consequently, uh, abandonment, both in the business and personal sense, is important, and we've deemed it critical to raising the bar and to effectively going through life. Well, I would say that this concept that you talk about in the book, this critical abandonment, is it, it's an aha moment. But you know, I've, I've I've spoken with many authors about the whole concept of the generational issues, and and one in particular, you know, fundamental minimalist—that term that people are using today. Uh, where people aren't bringing the things into their life first. They're really thinking it through before they buy that widget, that gadget, that magazine, that whatever. And I think that's where it starts, is really uh, our desire, because we're not feeling we're enough, that we have to have more. So we fill the houses with more stuff that we never use. Uh, any comment on that? Well, you know, I, I would disagree a little bit. My observation is buy everything they can and then maybe use it or toss it out, uh, that we're, we're subsumed in this noise today on the internet uh, with media, with advertising, even with subliminal advertising, with normative pressures. And we try a lot more than we should. And uh, it, it's too bad that people don't do more of what you're talking about and take a step back and say, is this something I really need? Is it something I really want to do? Or am I buying it or doing it just because everybody else is? And right. that's one problem today. Everybody's too damn busy. Well, you might have a little bit less critical abandonment if you really thought stuff through ahead of time. And I think that's the thing. We're moving at such a, a rapid pace um, that, you know, people aren't thinking through thoroughly, maybe making that decision. They just randomly make the decision about something. Now, you mentioned that the evolutionary journey has to be holistic, that we need to look at all elements of our life. And you have a chart in the book. And look, there's been lots of books that have these kind of charts, you know, look at every area of your life. Are you in balance? Can you discuss your personal growth metrics modes and how we should consider a balanced approach to our own reinvention as a human species, as a human being? Well, I'm not going to talk about anything so grand as a human species. I'm not qualified to do that. Well, I, how about I'll a human being? Well, <laughs> well, even then, we can only speak for ourselves, but I would tell you this. Uh, we have to come to grips with the fact that um, it's, it's, we have to ignore the pressures on us to be somebody other than who we need to be. Uh, we tend to think today will be repeated tomorrow. So what we see today is what we get tomorrow, and that's not true. We're part of a motion picture, not a snapshot, and things continue to change. But the key, Greg, is this. Um, 
every day we create our legacy. You know, legacy is not created when you pass away. Legacy is created every day of your life. So every day you're writing a new page in your book. And the question is, is that page you're writing the same as yesterday's or is it different? And we have the power, that goes back to the control issue we discussed a few minutes ago, to make it different. So my metrics are, personally, and I certainly think others could profit by them, but to each his own, my metrics are, am I growing? Can I help people more today than I did tomorrow? Am I learning new things? Am I applying new things? Am I understanding where things didn't work and learning why? And am I exploiting things that worked well? And one of the problems today, of course, is that we live in a polarized world. You're for us or against us. And so more and more people are learning less and less because they're only engaged in confirmation bias, which is I will only listen to or read people who agree with me. I'm not going to listen to people with whom I disagree. And that is one of the great negatives of our age. So my metric is, am I listening to both sides of arguments and am I using that to grow? And it's as simple as that. Well, I will say, Alan, that you and Marshall, just with your expertise as uh, executive coaches in your life and the things that the two of you have done, the journeys, plus just, you know, looking at the wisdom that each of you have, that it's really embodied in this book. This is not a hard book to read people. Um, it's easy. It's not a lot of pages. The, the text is, is big. There's great questions. Um, but I love this part, Alan, and I'm going to take it from the back of your book. It says, in our culture, we're bombarded by messages that essentially say change, improve, get better. Given how overwhelmed that we were just talking about these messages are, it's tempting to simply shut them out. Who can possibly follow all that advice? Well, I'll tell you that this book, in its very kind of short 190-something pages, uh, will provide you with the tools that you need. Uh, it'll give you the inspiration you need. It's got lots of stories in it as well uh, to actually uh, get you moving in the right direction. And some of the stuff is so simplistic, but a lot of it is so overlooked. Alan, I appreciate having you on Inside Personal Growth, uh, speaking with my listeners today. Is there anything you'd like to leave them with in parting words? Well, like you, I would like to thank you, listeners, for being here. Uh, it's always an inspiration to know that people are, are listening to your message. And I'd like to thank you uh, for the courtesy and inviting me here today. Ah, not a problem, Alan. I look forward to having you on again. And uh, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you.